Hello and welcome to OU's Nach Yomi. You can find this year posted at ouradio.org/nach or on my website, ericlevy.com, under the recording section. Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy. I'm pleased to bring to you Chapter 11 of the Book of Daniel. Chapter 11 is the body of the apocalypse, the inscribed words of truth, which the angel, who was probably Gabriel, came uh, to tell Daniel in the previous chapter. Um, actually, the true words, the actual prophecy, or the apocalypse, will begin in verse 2, as I will demonstrate. So, the angel is still setting up the apocalypse, and he says as follows, V'ani bishnat achat omdi And I, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to strengthen and to be a stronghold for him. Now, at first glance, we might wonder why the angel would support Darius the Mede. However, this verse is really just a continuation of the previous verse, or the last verse, the final verse in chapter 10, which reads, Now, none would fight alongside me other than Michael, your officer. So, Michael is the subject of this verse. Um, he is fighting, uh, he is the angel who is fighting against Darius the Mede, and this angel, Gabriel, is saying that I am supporting them. Now, in the next verse, the angel begins the actual tale of the history. And now I will tell you the truth. But before I get there, I should review a few things about this chapter. First of all is the idea of how prophecy works. There are two kinds of prophecy, or visions, it doesn't really matter. There are prophecies that reveal something about the present in order to fix whatever is wrong and to save the transgressors from from some predicted and predictable consequence. These are not future-telling prophecies, even though they may include some future that the current bad path that the people are on will lead to. For example, when Jonah tells Nineveh that they will be destroyed in 40 days, that's not a future prophecy. Jonah was saying, if you don't put aside your sins, then you will be destroyed in 40 days. And if you put away your sins, then you won't be destroyed. These revelatory prophecies, as opposed to future-telling prophecies, are far and away the most common forms of prophecy that appear in the Bible. Future-telling prophecies are few and far between. They tend to be apocalyptic, such as the vision the vision uh, at the covenant of pieces, what's called Brit ben Abitarim, when Abraham saw about his children were going to go into slavery, and Jacob's view of what would happen to his children at the end of the days is also a future-telling and apocalyptic prophecy. Um, however, there is nowhere, even among these future type of visions, these future telling visions, which are very rare in general, there is no prophecy like the one that we have here, or a vision like, that we have here, which predicts the future history of the people step by step, detail by detail, such as what we encounter now in this final apocalyptic uh, vision in the book of Daniel. Uh, we are constantly, because of all the details, tempted to identify these unidentified details, uh, especially with historical events that occurred during the Second Temple, which seems to be the time that they're being predicted. But there are different approaches at, at these identifications. Some think, think that this whole matter comes to a head in Greek times, some in Roman times, some extended to the religion and the powers that grow out of Roman domination. 
Um, I'll try to identify some of the events, especially the ones where most commentators agree about uh, what they what they are. For those which there's not so much broad agreement, I'll uh, provide a few guesses about uh, who the who the identity of these events might uh, might be. Uh, occasionally, I won't dare to offer an opinion, and I'll just stick to exactly what's described, ex- describing what's in the verse. Of course, my translations of the verse are affected by my predisposition towards which events it might be referring to, so I should in- admit my uh, my guilt now of doing that and sometimes translating somewhat subjectively. And now, the angel begins his revelation of the future and the world-altering events that will take place. V'ata emet agid od Omdim lefaras varavii yashir osher gadol mikol uchches gato beoshro yair akol et malchut yavan. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, there are three more kings will arise in Persia, which apparently means three more kings after the current king Cyrus, and then a fourth will become more exceedingly wealthy than any of the others or anyone else. But all of his strength and all of his great wealth will stir up the kingdom of Greece. And a mighty king will ascend and he will rule over a great empire and he will do as he pleases. Pretty much everybody agrees that this is Alexander the Great, Alexander of Mokdon. Uh, in fact, Josephus writes that when Alexander the Great was crossing through Israel in his world conquest on his way to Persia, uh, the high priest in Jerusalem showed him this passage which predicts the success of his campaign to take down the Persian Empire, which he was at that time embarking on. And Alexander was so impressed by the whole thing that he granted the Jews in Israel and in Babylon and Persia religious autonomy, well, in Babylon and Persia when he'd get there. Now, why Alexander was upset about the next verse, verse 4. I'm not sure. Maybe they didn't translate it for him. And in his ascension, which means at his great heights, his empire will be broken and divided into the four winds of the heavens, meaning the four corners of the earth, and none of these would be for his own end. In this case, the word Lachrito means his own children would not inherit from him. And when his kingship is uprooted, none will rule as he ruled, which means nobody would be as great, and so others besides these, meaning besides these four primary kings, others would also get little tiny chunks of the disintegrating empire of Alexander the Great, uh, but none of them would have Alexander, anything like Alexander's might. Uh, one of the four primary kings is king of the south, and we'll see the other great player in the main enemy is king of the north. The king of the south is always translated by the Septuagint, which is the old Greek translation, as Basilian Aiguptu, which means the king of Egypt. Vayechazak melech hanegev umin sarav, vayechazak alav umashal mimshal rav memshalto. And the king of the south, that is according to Septuagint, the king of Egypt will become strong even over his officers and he will overcome him and his rule would be, will be as great as the rule over a great kingdom, which means he'll really be a fantastically powerful king. This may be referring to Ptolemy I who ruled the Egyptian part of of the uh, Alexandrian Empire, and in fact ruled it for a good 40 years. It's not clear who the servant is, who he's overcoming. Perhaps it was Alexander's replacement in Macedonia, who tried but failed to keep the empire united. Or perhaps it was Ptolemy's own internal struggles in Egypt. Um, Or it might be talking about the wars of the Diadochi, 
um, which is when those the newly uh, split up kingdom of Alexander, the king started warring against each other to extend their control. In verse six, the king of the south uh, uh, tries to extend his power. And at the end of the years, apparently after Ptolemy I gave way to Ptolemy II, they will make an alliance, meaning as we will see with the king of the north. Apparently the Seleucid dynasty that rules in north Syria and Mesopotamia is what is referred to as the king of the north. Israel, as well as southern part of Syria, was at that time under the control of the Ptolemies, the king of the south. And the area, in fact, Israel and south of Syria was a constant rivalry point, uh, seesawing back and forth between these two mini empires. Getting back to the verse, and the daughter of the southern king will come to the northern king to make a peace treaty, but she will not retain the strength of arms, and he, perhaps her father, will not be able to stand by her with forces, and she will be given over, meaning apparently given over to death or imprisonment, along with her attendants and her husband, uh, and they will be held for the times. It's a difficult verse, and my translation is loose, uh, is definitely loose. But the general sense is there, which is that they tried to unite the two kingdoms via marriage, but she was ill-treated, and the north broke the treaty. Ebenezer identifies this woman as the Queen of Sheba, as being in the south. Another possibility, if we stay a little more local, is um, is what's being described as if, is the well is the historically. Uh, known ill-fated marriage between Ptolemy II's daughter, Berenice, uh, with Antiochus II, which ended off gruesomely for everyone except Antiochus's first wife, who pretty much had everyone killed, including Berenice, um, whom Antiochus had divorced in order to make room for Berenice. Um, uh, not a good idea uh, to scorn uh, a woman in that way. But from her roots will arise a foundation, meaning a son, uh, uh, an heir, and he will come against their armies and then the stronghold of the northern king and make war on them and will take hold of them, which means that a child will be born of Berenice or whoever the the daughter of the southern king was, and he would come into the north at a later time and make war against the northern king. And even their gods, meaning their idols, along with their um, offerings, the poured offerings, and precious vessels and silver and gold, he will take in spoils to Egypt. But after some years, the king of the north will arise. And he, this king of the north, will come into the land of the south, and then he will return to his land. The king of the south was, was perhaps at this time Ptolemy III, and the northern king, who in fact did lead a short-lived expedition into Egypt, was perhaps Seleucus II. But the children of this rather weak northern king will do much better than their father. Verse 10. However, his sons 
will embark on war and will gather a massive army and will surely come and inundate everything and on the both on the way in and on the way out and will take the war even to his stronghold meaning apparently even to the capital city of the southern king so the king of the south who is now perhaps Ptolemy the the, the fourth became bitterly angry and will go out to war against the king of the north and he apparently the king of the north will put together a multitude to be placed in his hands and he apparently the king of the south will also raise masses that is a mass army and he will kill tens of thousands but his heart will become haughty and he will not retain his power. Meaning that perhaps he made a successful war against the north. However, he couldn't finish the job since in the next verse, verse 13, we'll see that the northern king uh, escapes. The king of the north will then return and muster a multitude even greater than the first. And at the end of a certain period of time, that is years, he, the king of the north, will inexorably or will surely come with a great army and with massive supplies, which means apparently the first time he wasn't smart enough to well-equip his army, but this time he's not going to make the mistake. Um, this all, by the way, may be taking place after Ptolemy IV dies, because what happened after Ptolemy IV died is that he was succeeded by an infant son. So essentially the government was run by a regent and not run very well. At those times, which means when the north is making its well-equipped attack into the south, many will arise against the king of its south, apparently many of the vassal states that belong to the south. But not only them, it says, and the renegades, the pretzim of your own people will rise up in order to fulfill a vision or, or to the appointment of a prophet. That is, the People in Israel would support, or at least some of them, who are being criticized, no doubt, by the author, by Daniel, uh, are going to go along with these countries who are siding with the Seleucids against the, the Ptolemies, with the king of the north against the king of the south. Now, there's clear criticism against anybody siding with the northern kingdom here, and apparently the Jews would justify their decision based on some false prophecy or some false prophet. As such, the prophecy, prophecy this prophecy, because of the way these paritzim, these uh, these renegades handle the situation and try to appoint their own uh, seer or prophet, it was their their own downfall was guaranteed or was prophesized. Um, even if the North is quite successful, as we'll see, these renegades will be trampled. Um, this may fall under the, the category that the enemy of your enemy is very often more of an enemy, and siding with him is a bad move. Now, Rashi says that it, he said in the name of Rav Sajigon, somebody quoting uh, Rav Sajigon because he didn't see Rav Sajigon himself, who identified this false seer as Jesus, and the pretzim are the followers thereof. This, of course, would push the history out to Roman times rather than Greek times some 200 years later. And, of course, this coincides with Rashi's sense that the fourth king, which has been stated in all these apocalypses, the, the fourth beast, is Rome. Uh, Ibn Ezra says these events are play, taking place in the time of Shiba Menchetach, who was the great Pharisee rabbi and brother-in-law of Alexander Janius, uh, who ruled Israel uh, in the first quarter of the first century BCE, about 100 to 75 BCE. Um, anyway, let's return back to the war in verse 15. 
מבצרות וזרועות הנגב לא יעמדו ועם מבחרה ואין כוח לעמוד. And the king of the north will throw siege works and conquer fortified cities and the forces of the south even his chosen soldiers, that is, his best troops, will not have the strength to withstand it. And he, the king of the north, will do whatever he wants, and whoever with whoever comes his way, none will stand against him, and he will occupy occupy the beautiful land, which of course is a metaphor or an epithet for Israel, and destruction will be in his hand. Meaning, I think, that the renegade Jews who supported him will be unpleasantly shocked at the king's treatment of their country and of them as well. And he, the northern king, I think, will turn his attention to take full control over his, that is, the southern king's kingdom, and he will make, so he will make peace treaties with him, and the daughter of his wives he will give to him for the sake of destruction, which means it was really just a plot to, uh, to, uh, get one of his own inside the Egyptian, uh, uh, politics, but it, or she, will not stand, she will not be his. Now Rashi sees this as an effort that focuses on Israel, and Rashi sees this as an effort of this northern king, Roman, to convert a woman of Israel, but she wouldn't go, give in even though it cost her her life. If we stick to the more historical perspective, the historical perspective, this woman can be the first Cleopatra, who was given, who the daughter of Antiochus III, who was a very successful and powerful king, who did succeed in attacking Egypt, um, and he gave his daughter, Cleopatra I, to Ptolemy V, uh, he was 16 at the time and she was uh, only 10. In fact, Cleopatra did not support her father's interest in Egypt historically and she in fact became loyal to the Egyptian cause. Not only that, we'll see that she ruled uh, Egypt after her husband's death while her son Ptolemy VI was still too young to rule and she was a quite successful ruler. Returning to this northern kingdom wars though, we have verse 18. <speaking in Hebrew> He will then turn his attention to the islands. Once Egypt is all wrapped up, the islands, he mean, what that means is Asia Minor, on the coast of the Mediterranean, the Aegean Islands perhaps, the islands of the Mediterranean, which are all stepping stones to attack, uh, to, to attack the, to Greece itself. And he will conquer many of them, but an officer shall stop his blasphemy for him. His blasphemy would never be returned to him. This may be Rome's putting of an end to Antiochus III westward expansion. So, having been thwarted in his westward campaigns, since he was getting too close to Roman territory, he will turn this his attention to the stronghold within his own land, but he will stumble and fall never to be found. Va'amad al-Kano, so after he's dead, the next one in line, Va'amad al-Kano ma'avir nogei seder malchut, uv'yamim achadim yishaber velo ve'apayim velo ve'milchama. And a rising on his foundation, meaning the next king, will transfer over an oppressor of the glory of kingdoms. But in a very short time, he, the king, will be broken, neither in public nor in war. If this is, in fact, uh, 
predicting the uh, Hellenistic period, which I've been talking about up to this point, that is the the uh, Greek domination and then the uh, Seleucid and Ptolemaic uh, empires, then this guy would seem to be the son of Antiochus III uh, or Seleucus IV Philopater, who appointed Heliodorus to strip the Holy Temple from its money. Uh, because as we'll see, they were really in a big debt to Rome because it put all kinds of penalties on the Seleucid government for daring to come into their territory. So as a result, they went to pillage the Holy Temple, uh, and he was quite the nasty guy according to the Book of the Maccabees. Again, Rashi puts this in Rome and not Greek times, um, but uh, in any event, this king here only gets one verse that he appointed this this oppressor of the glory of nations, which I believe is talking about Israel and the high priesthood and the temple. But the next king, his his I shouldn't say his son, the one who rules after him, will have a long and infamous history. And then a disgraceful one will take the throne, who will not have the glory of kingship placed on him, and he will come with complacence, that is, with a sense of self-satisfaction, and will hold on to the kingship using lies, trickery, plots, literally chalaklakot means like slippery things. The word shalva, of course, directly recalls the second apocalypse in this book from chapter 8, which talked about the tricky and complacency of that little horn, who in his complacency would kill multitudes and even take on the angels in heaven themselves before falling suddenly by no human hand. As it says there in verse 25, uvishalva yashchit rabim v'alsar sarim ya'amod uve'efes yad yishaver. But in the meantime, he will have quite the... Rise to power. Verse 22. And the armies of inundation will inundate any before him, and they will be broken, that is, anyone who stands against this, this guy, along with the leader of the covenant. I think this leader of the covenant may be the high priest of Israel, who tried to make a deal with the northern king, only to be killed as well in his treachery. And all those who make treaties with him, he will deal with treacherously, that's talking about the Jews, and he will be become strong, though he has but a few people. Abarbanel IDs this treacherous king as none other than Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, who tricked Egypt into a treaty and then turned against it. Although here, again, I think the trickery is referring to the high priest that, that uh, put their trust in him to give them power. Um, in fact, historically, Jason had his brother Onias III deposed by Antiochus Epiphanes as ruler and as high priest. And then after Jason took over, Menalus, or Menelus essentially did the same thing to Jason by paying him more. Antiochus was not the man who would, kind of man who would stay bought when there was a profit to be made. Still, the next verse, focusing on, uh, on what he was doing in Israel. Bishalva uv mishmane medina yavo v'asa. With complacence, he will rise against the richest part of the province and do what was never done by his father or father's fathers, 
uh, scattering around plunder and booty and properties, meaning bribing, uh, making a real redistribution of wealth in order to keep uh, anybody he wanted in charge or just in general to keep the balance of power from coalescing and causing problems for him. And he will plot intrigues against the fortified cities until the time, with a capital T. Following his conquest and control of Israel, we turn to the conflict that he has with the southern king. Verse 25. And he will stoke up his strength and his attentions on the king of the south with a great army. Apparently that army was positioned in Israel, as we'll see. And the king of south will agitate it, agitate also agitate into a war with a very great army, but it will not withstand, that is, the northern king's army will not be able to match the southern king's, even though it may be bigger, because the plots of the plots that were hatched against it. The sense here is that the northern king bluffed the southern king in attacking first into the land of Israel by raising a large, la- a large army land of Israel. The southern king took the bait, but he failed because the people who ate from the pot bag of the king, the, the king's food, the king's table. And based on the word pot bag, it clearly this means something like, uh, that is the pot bag that we saw by Daniel. It was apparently the food that was divvied out to the advisors and the sages, the viziers. And they will break him, that is, the viziers, these sages will break him and, and his, that is, the northern king's armies will inundate and a great many will fall, that is, from the southern armies, meaning that his own advisors convinced him to wage a war that he simply had no chance of winning. And these kings, both of whose hearts are given towards wickedness, that is both the south and the north, will speak lies to one another as they sit at the same table, and it will not succeed, that is all of their deals, wheeling and dealing, will not succeed because the appointed time will not have reached the end. This probably means that the king of the north, who took the king of the south more or less captive to the north, um, and the North clearly had an advantage. However, it was in the North's interest to come to a treaty with the South. Um, but in fact, each one of them was a bigger liar than the next. So essentially what the prophet is saying here, or what the vision is saying, is that it all amounts to nothing. Now, for the first time, God's messianic plan is brought up. We say, because that end time has not yet come up. Perhaps um, the angel inserts the idea that there's something messianic going on here, because... This is, we're at a real turning point in history. That is, if the North and South unite here in a, in a decrepit and deceitful way, if they manage to create an empire that is so dominant and so treacherous, then there really would have been no hope for Jewish, uh, nation at all who's sandwiched in between them. Only a nasty, uh, outcome might have been possible, or a purely messianic, immediate messianic outcome would be possible. However, what the verse is saying, it simply wasn't time for that, so all the wheeling and dealing came to nothing. Historically, who might this be? This might, the southern king might be Ptolemy VI. Um, after his mother, Cleopatra, died, he was misled by his advisors into attacking Antiochus IV in Israel, and he lost big time. Um, he was captured by Antiochus, and they together plotted to rule jointly instead of Ptolemy VIII, who was Ptolemy VI's brother. But in the end, actually, Ptolemy VIII married his sister Cleopatra II and took back control of Egypt. 
Now, all of these were nephews and niece, in the case of Cleopatra, to Antiochus IV. But Rome was not going to allow him to take over control of Egypt. That is, he had to work through the proxies of the Ptolemies, because, as I said, Rome didn't want any, him anywhere near the territory, and they certainly didn't want this kingdom united against Rome either. Anyway, the next verse returns back to how this northern king affected Israel, since ultimately that's the point of this vision, which is to say how history affects Israel. Um, and he will return to his country with great wealth and with his mind on the Holy Covenant, which is on the way through Israel back to his home, he had his mind on the Holy Covenant and he will act on it and then return to his land. This probably predicts not only the looting of the temple on the way home, but the outlawing of the Torah of the Brit Kodesh itself. In verse 29, the northern king makes another attempt on the south. At an appointed time, he, the northern king, possibly, as I said, Antiochus Epiphanes, will return on its way through, going through Israel, of course, and will come to the south. However, the invasion will not be like the earlier one, nor like the latter one. If my historical idea is correct, then this describes the time that Cleopatra managed to actually re- reunite her brothers against their mutual enemy and uncle Antiochus. Um, I guess certain blood ties controlled by Cleopatra are more effective, more effective than uh, other uh, blood ties. I'm not sure what the verse means by the latter one, but the first one is definitely the war where he managed to conquer uh, most of Egypt and a lot of Egypt and take uh, Ptolemy the sixth captive to make deals with. The reason for the lack of his success in Egypt is given as follows. It's not really Cleopatra by herself, although her reunification is whoever reunified uh, Egypt was doing a good thing. But the real winner was as follows. And the armada of the Kitim who almost everyone identifies as the Romans, regardless of where we are on the timeline of the history, will come against him. As I said, the Romans did not think kindly about the unification of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, and they certainly didn't want Antiochus anywhere in their neighborhood. I think this may be the place where there's an interesting historical uh, event told by, if I'm not mistaken, Greek historians, so I'm not sure, about how um, a... um, a messenger came from Rome to tell uh, the king, Antiochus, that he better get the heck out of town. So the king says to him, um, or, or he better essentially give up his desire for war. So the king says to him, so Antiochus IV says to him, you know, I need to go back and talk with my uh, cabinet. And the uh, messenger from Rome essentially draws a circle around Antiochus and says, before you step out of the line of this circle, you better tell me whether you're going to, uh, to back out of this war or not, which he did. And he will be put down and then return in anger against the Holy Covenant. Then he will make certain enactments and then return to focus on those who abandon the Holy Covenant. Which means if you can't beat the bad guys, so turn against the Jews and uh, what's going on in their land. And he will appoint forces, apparently both Jews who left the covenant along with his own forces. If you remember in the verse, it says he was going to concentrate not only on the breaking the holy uh, the holy covenant, but focus on those who had abandoned the holy covenant, which are these essentially post, uh, these uh, these apostate Jews. 
um, and they will defile the temple, the fortress, apparently the temple is called a fortress, and they will annul the daily offering, and they will set up a desolating abomination. This, of course, parallels the second and the third apocalypses, which predicted this annulling of the of the daily offering, the tamid, to three and a half years. The Shikutz Mishomeim was some kind of horrible idol erected in the temple. The book of the Maccabees, which is well aware of the book of Daniel, refers to the idol that Antiochus set up there in the same terms as a Shikutz Mishomeim. And I would strongly suggest that, um, so that, that, that you read Maccabees 1, which is a very historical account of all these events, and Maccabees 2, which is also strongly um, historical, although it has a much stronger religious slant, to see what actually occurred during this time. And those who turned against the covenant, that is these apostates, he will further contaminate with lies, but the people who know God will be strong and will act. Uh, this may be the beginning of what would become Matityahu's movement, uh, the Chashmonayim movement. Unfortunately, it's easy to imagine a people who are divided on religious and political lines and to see how it could lead to bloody civil war and, con- and, con- and conflict. And even if you're on the right side of history, um, what needs to be done is gruesome and one should hope it never happens. God willing, we will never come to such things. Anyway, let's see what these loyal ones do. Verse 33. And the teachers of the people will bring understanding to the populace. That is, they'll teach people how to act religiously and how to have faith in God and how to hold strong. But as a result, for years they will fall by the sword, they will fail by the sword and in flames and as captives and as spoils, which means it will be very dangerous to be a leader of the of the rebellion, the religious rebellion uh, uh, and sedition against Antiochus uh, the fourth or whoever this northern king is. But as they are ed- as they are um, as they are failing, that is, while some of them will fall, they will receive some small help, which meaning perhaps they will perhaps you know have some kind of small victory, and many will start gathering them, or I should say, but many will start gathering to them dishonestly. Perhaps that means that many who join the movement, especially after this little success, are doing so dishonestly or for the wrong reasons, or maybe even as spies for the apostates. Umina maskilim yikashalu litzrof b'hem uluvarer uludilabein ad eight kates. And now the angel has to explain how these maskalim are working on the right side of, of what needs to be happening, why, are, why they are falling to the sword and to the fire. And some of these teachers will fail, apparently from the deceits of their followers or for being caught teaching sedition. Uh, but this is in order to purify, to select the best, to cleanse them until the end time because the appointed time will not have come yet. It seems that the initial attempt at an underground did not succeed according to the angel telling Daniel, according to the book of Daniel, even among the masculine, is that the promoters of the sedition, they were not all really as worthy or ready as they should have been, and in any event, the times were still further off, so maybe they were trying to make things happen a little bit sooner than they should have. I'm not entirely sure there's a criticism here, but there may be a bit of a criticism. In verse 36, we return to everyone's enemy, this northern king. And 
And this king will do as he pleases. He will aggrandize himself, make himself greater than any god, meaning the Greek and Mesopotamian gods, the idols. And he will speak haughtily or too wondrously. Here the word niflaot is a negative sense against the god of gods, that is the god in Jerusalem. And he will succeed until the time of wrath is complete because that which is engraved, will be done. And just like Daniel was told in the previous apocalypse, that the Jews will sin, the people of Israel will sin, and therefore will require another set of 70, in addition to what Jeremiah prophesies, in this case 70 times 7 years, the goal being to purify the people from their sins. This is what's called the age of wrath, the Zam, and this is how the angel is explaining why all, why all these terrible things are happening, and why this this northern king, perhaps Antiochus Epiphanes, is being so successful at taking down the Jewish religion. And even towards the God of his fathers, he will give no recognition. Which means, not only is it against the Jewish religion, he'll be uh, not just unfaithful, but destructive, but he'll be unfaithful towards his own religion. Nor to the one desired by women, I'll get to that in a second, he will recognize no God, because he has elevated himself above them all. From context, there seems to have been a goddess, or perhaps a god that was much desired by women. Perhaps it's referring to the fertility god Adonis, or which is akin to the Mesopotamian god Tammuz. Um, all of this fits into the history of Antiochus. Um, and in fact, even his name Epiphanes does not mean so much to be have a revelation from God, but it is to attain godhood itself. Then he will give honor to a god of the strong, perhaps that was the name of the god, Ma'uzim, on its throne, that is, he'll set it up on a pedestal, a god who his own fathers did not recognize he will give honor to. He will give honor with gold and silver and precious stones and all kinds of precious things. And he will make in the fortresses of the strong, which are apparently strong fortresses throughout Israel, he will put in them this strange God, and he will increase the honor of those who recognize it, and appoint them over the populace, and he will trade away land for money. Even Ezra says this fortress that the king sets up is Constantinople, and you can guess which false god even Ezra thinks that the verse is referring to. However, it may be best to leave things in the second temple times, unless, as I've said before, history repeats itself, which means the things that happen in the second temple happen afterwards again. Now, from verse 40 and on, we get to the downfall of this northern king and the messianic days that will arise out of it. As I've said before, messianic days have a way of approaching over and over again and then slipping away. According to our rabbinic sages, had the Maccabees not sinned by holding on to the kingship rather than returning it to the Davidic line, the Mashiach may have been restored, escorting in, by definition, the messianic times. So too with Rabbi Akiba's revolt against the Romans spearheaded by Bar Kokhba. And so too earlier in history when the king Chizkiyahu defended Jerusalem against Sanchev of Assyria. Prophecy, or in this case inspired vision, is not limited to any one historical time. So when do these events take place where the king of the north is brought down? It's hard to say. They may have happened and happened more than once and they will happen again.
Uveit kates, and at the end of time, Nagach imo melech negev yistaer alav melech atzafon berechav uvafarashim uvaoniot rabot uvabar sot v'shataf v'avar. The king of the south will come into conflict with him, that is, with the king of the north, and the northern king will attack him with chariots and cavalry and with many ships, and he will come into lands, meaning many lands, and inundate them, which means the south will attack the north, but the north will rise up and successfully counterattack. And then he will come to the beautiful land, Israel, of course, and the following ones, or peoples, will escape from his hands. Edom, Moab, and the primary people of Ammon. Now, what were they doing in Jerusalem? I don't know. But they are going to flee. I mean, perhaps they thought that they would be on the side of the northern king, but they're going to wind up fleeing. Of course, the Jews living in Israel are no doubt on the run as well. But he, the, the northern king, will cast his hands into lands, meaning many lands, and Egypt will offer no refuge, that is, to these fleeing people. Or perhaps translated as, Egypt will not be given refuge even for herself. Umashal b'michmaneim hazahav v'akesef uvchol chamudot mitzrayim veluvim v'chuzim b'mitzadav. Michmanei is a uh, unique word, but Rashi notes that the Arabic, the Aramaic uh, a kaman means an ambush with, I guess, the intent of robbing money. So within the context, it means that the northern king will control treasure troves, plunders of gold, plundered of gold and silver, and the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Kushan will follow in his footsteps, meaning these two uh, sub-nations... Um, will join the armies of the north. Libyans, the Libyans and the Kushites, Libyans to the east of Egypt proper, um, I'm sorry, to the west of Egypt proper, and uh, the Kushites to the south of Egypt proper. Uh, actually, occasionally, sometimes their people ruled over Kush when uh, when the locals lost their short-lived control. But by and large, these countries were usually under the domination of Egypt. But while he, the northern king, has all of his forces in conquest over Egypt, rumors will come from the east and the north, meaning apparently from Israel, and he will go out to war in great anger to destroy and demolish the populace. Vita aholei apadno ben yamim lahart svi kodesh va'ad kitso ve'enozerlo. And as he pitches his royal tent between the seas and the holy beautiful mountain, of course Jerusalem, so it sounds like he's probably encamped around Beit Shemesh or the Ayalon Hills or somewhere in that region, he will come to his end and none will be able to help him. This sudden end, apparently from quote-unquote natural forces, really from the hand of God, matches the vision of the little horn in chapter 8, who is said to fail by no discernible hand. In the next chapter, some of this very same history will be seen in a very abridged form from a heavenly perspective, rather than what here has been an almost complete focus on human events, and a lot of human events. Essentially, the angel has described Daniel, the ebb and the flow of geopolitics, culminating, starting with the Greek domination of the world and culminating with this horrible northern king that will suppress Judaism and who in turn will be destroyed. All of this was what will happen during that time of wrath before the end, with a capital E, is meant to come.